1: Hey guys, welcome back to Foul Play. This time I'm actually in person in Maryland with Gemma. Gemma and I are joined by Jean and Teresa. And Gemma, why don't you explain what we're going to be talking about today?
2: Everybody's been waiting for this because we made a big announcement about this in capital letters a couple of weeks ago. Actually, we're all in Maryland. That doesn't mean that it's okay if somebody wants to get rid of us, that we're all in one place. But anyway, so we're excited today because we've never done anything like this before. Shane and I have done a lot, like 70 podcasts together, but we've never done one with audio and video. But because this is such an important topic and an important focus, that's what we're doing. And so we're going to ask you to settle in because this is something that is critical to all of us. In fact, I'm actually going to read the first sentence of the focus because I want to make sure everybody understands exactly what you're going to hear. So the focus of this interview is on the challenges that Jean and Teresa and many other survivors have faced with the institutions that betrayed them. And those institutions are The Roman Catholic Church, especially the Archdiocese of Baltimore, government, local and federal, because the FBI is still preventing the Malecki family from looking at records that belong to them. But mostly our local law enforcement, because we know that police officers were involved in this mess. We're going to go back and start with the early legal battles and a lot about the Doe case. So we're going to go back to the 90s and we're going to ask Jean to talk about that first and tell us about the Doe case, how that came to be and your role in that.
3: Thanks, Gemma and Shane, for doing this. And Teresa, I'm glad we had have this chance to chat a bit together. It's been a lot of years. And we've done things differently, but we have continued to do things. And that, to me, is that's the key. It was in spring 1992, I was 38, which by one aside, that is the age of the statute of limitations now. So even if now I was remembering it at a time that was appropriate or acceptable, it was now. it, It took a number of years for me to finally talk about it outwardly. I literally still have no memory other than what I've remembered. Things like some of the fun things I have purposely tried, sat with classmates, done different things, been reminded by them who they saw me as, so that I wouldn't just be stuck with these horrible memories, but I felt as if a 14-year-old sat down next to me and said, I have something to tell you. Now, I had already remembered my uncle and abuse that happened at his hands, but this started the process of these memories that were, I call it, I was throwing up memories of, Joseph Maskell and Neil Magnus, abusing. These are very disgusting memories. There's no chronological order to it. They're stored, as I've spoken to a number of trauma experts, in certain part of the brain, different than your regular mess segment or whatever part that is, because it's so traumatic. It just gets sucked into this one particular area. So when it comes, it just drops, and yet it unfolds. And you feel as if you were in the experience for the first time. So sometimes I was a here I am, 38-year-old woman, curled up on the floor, feeling as if I am being horribly abused by these men, and it's the first time I'm actually experiencing it. It was, for me, a nightmare. It was not just nightmare, it was, I hoped I was crazy, because I thought I was all together. I was now a spiritual director. I was very involved with him at church. And I really felt like I must have really gone off the deep end because I couldn't even made up what it was these people were doing to me. So the work began. Then later in the year. I had a number of meetings with the Catholic Church representative. At the first one uh, that was with Roy, he literally held up a Manila folder and said, you're the first person to ever voice a complaint about this man. And I think my sister and I said he might have one piece of paper. So I, as a survivor who thinks I'm nuts anyway now, think I'm totally responsible Not just for what I'm saying, but proving it. Because he's telling me I'm the only person saying it. So it just intensified my nuttiness. Or so I thought. I had meetings, formal meetings with them, and where I gave a statement. After the first one, Joseph Maskell, who was in his 50s, was removed from Holy Cross Parish and sent to the Institute of Living in Connecticut to be evaluated. Then I had the second one where I shared with them adults that I remembered. And at a certain point, they told me that they couldn't get any corroboration. They couldn't find any proof of my allegations. And they were going to have to let him back out. In 1994, when I agreed to do the lawsuit, which I had never ever thought I would ever do, where I would be participating in a suit... That would be at the statue. It was the Staises of Baltimore, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, and it was against Joseph Maskell. And at that time in 1994, some people had started speaking to the lawyers. And Teresa was one who had, I had never met, I didn't meet Teresa until 2016. But she had an experience that was more common, or to my experience, more Now, the reason that I said I would do this lawsuit wasn't to bankrupt the Catholic Church. I am not a church basher. I am not out to empty out their coffers. I have no belief in that I will get rich for any of this. But they were letting him back out and not just back out but into a parish near where i lived and now i have said these things and i knew because i had begun remembering that now i was going to be around kids and i had this little kid in me that was only 14 15 years old so i knew the fear of what that meant then i also knew that he had he had threatened me with a gun when i was young so i had these Images of him coming in my back window to shoot me and my kids. And so the other reason that I said yes was because back when we were in school, I graduated in 1971. The statute of limitations stated then that I had to report within three years of when the abuse stopped in order to hold anyone accountable. When I was explained that, I can say to this day, I believe I was in my three-year statute of limitation period. I had never remembered anything. I could have fallen over Joseph Maskell and wouldn't have known who the hell he was. And the things that I, it's not you remember, now you've remembered. I have been remembering for years. It comes in bits and pieces like a puzzle. It is excruciatingly painful at times, it can take a year just to go from the beginning of the thought of something that just is visceral reaction to a full-fledged memory of what happened and therapy to deal with the impact it had on me, even though I'm only just remembering a year before. So I truly believe then and I believe now that I was in my three-year statute of limitation period. And I had a right to hold that man accountable. But as we know, that did not happen. And one of the things that I feel is that I would never, because there were three parts to that. One was I was terrified. I've now told secret. I have now said these things. And no one did a damn thing about it. They did worse than that. They put him back out in a parish. They stopped paying for my, they had started paying for my therapy. And once they couldn't corroborate, they stopped the therapy payments, put him back out in a parish. So I was terrified. I believed and still do that I was in my statute limitation period. And somebody else. Who had a memory of this experience, who had been who affirmed this craziness in my head. Teresa, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know if that I was glad or I was mad, because I would have rather been crazy. But that they were the three reasons that I agreed to take these systems and this this monster. I'm not even going to call him a monster. I don't like to give them names that just disconnect them from. He made choices. He was a predator. He was was a perpetrator. He was a ringleader. He was a mastermind of perpetrating sexual abuse on children. So that is how I started. The process was thinking they were going to help me. I was very involved. I believe they were going to take the ball and run with it. I thought they were going to give support to my family because now I have these memories that I... And it went from that to I was left alone with my husband and my children, feeling like we had to fend for ourselves.
1: Teresa, could you explain to us your evolution of your involvement in that case?
3: Yeah, I had always... I was crazy. I always had an ongoing memory of a lot of things that Maskulk did to me. And I had told people that he was a pervert and that he liked to give me douches, animals, and take my clothes off. But I did not really I did not remember the actual rapes until I got involved. What happened was When I received the letter about the sexual behaviors at Keogh during the years I was there, I was really happy because, I, like I said, I thought I was crazy. I knew what he had done to me, and my mom had just passed away horribly. And as I focused on it, I started remembering it didn't stop there. It wasn't just a douche. then. I said, the dish would have been all right. And I started having breakthrough memories. And I talked to the lawyers and I said, at first I was going to be a witness because I can verify that, yes, he'd like to take clothes off. Yes, he would touch me and do weird things. And I wanted to be a witness. But then... I was waking up in the middle of the night screaming and, and telling Randy I was raped, and he was running around looking for the rapist, and it just turned my already upside down world worst. I went into it with anger. I had a lot of anger because of I didn't learn anything at Gervin's last two years. I just I was lost, ran off, married somebody I didn't even know, and I was angry about that. And when I knew that someone had the courage to forward and record this, I was very much touched about your courage, Jean. And I do think it was good they kept us separate because, and they were mysterious about it. They wouldn't even say why we were separate, except we were for me. And I was very happy to go after them and to tell the world that, it wasn't right. What happened to
2: Keo? Can I ask, I have a couple logistics questions that a lot of people that listen have asked about. Jean, could you review for us again who the defendants were in the suit that you and Teresa filed? You filed as co-de- co-plaintiffs, correct? I became Jane Doe. Okay. And uh, Teresa was Jane Rowe. Okay. So the defendants were, can you name the defendants and why you sued Each defendant. Joseph Maskell, he was being sued for, they had a whole
3: list of things that he had done that were against the law to be doing that with a minor. I was suing him personally in order for him to be taken off the street. Murphy, he was the lawyer for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And I was suing them because I believed that they knew. That they were his employers. They were the ones that needed to be held accountable for what their, this is, it sounds very nonchalant, but what their employees were doing and especially with children involved. And then it was Harrison who was for the school sisters in Notre Dame. And that was because there was memory of nuns. But then also it was, again, I felt Teresa can say what she knows different with her background, but it was that they were in school when they knew, that they were bringing them to to be held accountable for what did they know, what were their records, and what did we need in order to really truly hold this man to the higher
2: state of the law. So it wasn't until Teresa joined the... Suit that Richter was involved was named. Is that correct, Teresa? Can you explain that? When I told the lawyers that Maskell would take
3: me to the gynecologist, and then I had memories of things that happened with the gynecologist, they asked about including him in the lawsuit. And I said, yes, that happened. Sue him and me. surely, surely late. The lawyer that represented Richter, mm-hmm. she was a textbook lawyer, she was harsh, but they have to be harsh. But all the lawyers, uh, uh, one to Harrison, by the way, I can't pass up an opportunity and say how much I hated him. When well, I actually went to a family in another county and I called his office and I asked for Mr. Harrison. Instead, I wanted to hire Mr. Harrison just to see if he really died. And they didn't tell me. I found out other ways. Yeah. Yeah. But Miss Lake was a good lawyer, she was a battle person. And she represented Richter. Without all the other players that she mentioned, I had to endure their questions.
2: Before we ask you to share that experience, each of you, can one of you give us a little bit of information about the attorneys that were representing the two of you?
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately, consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well-being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy, BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online, giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Foul today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Foul, F-O-U-L.
3: I'll start, Teresa, because my experience may be different than Teresa's because we were separate, came with different things our personalities are different. I was, as you need to remember, I was in a, I was in the middle, I was a victim that should never been in that situation. I'm going to say that right now. Any victim who feels they want to hold somebody accountable, make sure you have an advocate with you, somebody who is a trauma specialist. You need to make sure you have the people in place because you get triggered left and upside down. There's, all kinds of stuff, the way that they ask questions, the way that they talk to you, the way that they look at you, how many times they ask the question, who can be there with you? It just to me, it to, to me, it was, I liked Phil. It was Phil Dantes, Beverly Wallace, and then Jim Magier came on. Phil had been someone my brother had known and how Phil came into it was the Archdiocese. I fired Steve Tully because he told me I wasted their time when I gave them the list of the adults who who I had remembered. And I told him, he asked me if I had anyone else that I remembered. And he said, I thought they were girls. And so you didn't ask me. So I don't understand. So my husband fired him. And then Rich Hoy, when I called him to see if he'd pray with me, he said, no, get a lawyer. So my brother, there were two that we were looking at and my brother knew Phil. So we I went down and I signed on with Phil, gave him the dollar or whatever. And that was it because nothing was happening with a lawsuit or anything. It's just in case Maskell decided to. Beverly Wallace was just his kind of like partner in crime, but it wasn't a lot of interacting until they started really, when I remembered Kathy Sesnick, when I remembered her death, my family literally drove me to Phil's office. And three of them went to the Enoch Pratt Library to look at microfiche because they were like, there was a nun who was murdered. And they went looking for that information. My, other, my brother took me to Phil. And said, we need to tell you what, what else is going on here. So Phil, to me, he was what I needed. He respected that I was a victim and how I had to do things. Beverly Wallace became the cat's meow. I just love Beverly. I think that she, I think too, part of it was because it was a woman that was a part of that team. And it meant a lot to me. Not saying anything other than she has a great ability to. Jim Maggio came on board because it were, he just knew he had to be a part of this. And Jim, it was the big, he was the biggest sweetheart you could ever find, gentle, and yet knew his stuff and was really right there. So they were the three, and I felt very comfortable with all three. Again, we might have had different experiences, but that was my feeling.
2: Teresa? I got to know
3: the three of them. And I'll never forget the first interview when I was telling them about Maskell's boat and how girls be on that. And Maggio said, have you just gone through life not not doing anything? Because I had seen a therapist. And I said, yeah, shit happens. I just uh, dove into life. But I grew to like the three of them. Especially Beverly. I could call her like when I got really upset and had the memories. She was always there on the sentence for me. And actually, I liked the three of them so much, I invited them. Randy and I got married in the middle of Doe Row. Not enough was (laughs) going. And I invited the three of them to my wedding. And we had a great time. It was good.
2: I don't know if our listeners know that Jim went to Cardinal Gibbons, which was next door to Keogh and knew and dated a lot of Keogh girls. So he actually also taught me how to smoke a cigar. That's <laughs> my claim to fame with Jim
1: Gene, <laughs> I wanted to follow up with something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, you had, you mentioned, I think that during the trial is when you remembered a nun being killed. Is that right?
3: It was not, no, it wasn't during the trial. Okay. I remember the nun being killed at the beginning of nineteen ninety three. The trial didn't happen until I think they presented it ninety four or ninety five. Mark.
1: The microfilch. Okay, thing, I didn't. I was just wanting you to go further into the microfish or the microfilch. Is that how you say it? Fish. Microfish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anytime I go to the library to use it, I'm always like is it a fish or a filch or a fish?
2: Exactly.
3: Um, <laughs>
1: I just wanted to hear more about how they took you presenting that information when you had those memories come back.
3: The memories when I had them come back, it was with of course it was with their lawyers that I shared it and then my family got a private detective Dick Fussy and he then started asking questions and that's how we came about with that anonymous letter that was going to go out. But it seemed to me that it made sense to the lawyers who we were working it almost was like the dots were coming together i will say my experience of deposition 21 hours of deposition was none of it did they treat it like they believed it or that it was it made sense or that i was speaking english so i would have to say that i was so beside myself with that experience that that I came away, I was just I was traumatized by it, so I came away just that they didn't believe anything I was saying, and I was running five hundred steps ahead of them, trying to appease them and say it in a way they could understand, so it just got thrown right in with everything else Shane they didn't Treat anything like they believed it. I'm sure that was something that they actually thought this woman really is nuts. They treated me the same way that they would say, and you say this and you say that. I did have, at that point, my dad was in the background. He had supported me at that time. I did have to tell him about the boss because I was reading about it in the paper, and he would prepare me for what those lawyers were going to do. And I went in there with an attitude. And at one point, Phil Dante said, We're gaining points with you because it would not, not for asking me about the douchebag and the animas and what was it. And then I gave him a long, drawn out explanation of the douchebag and the anima bag were one and the same apparatus. And I went into vivid detail about what happened with that. And then at one point, Phil said, Lose the end. I too much in the case. But yeah, they pissed me off. They really did. And I had to calm myself down. But the way they questioned me was like, You're making this up, you're
2: fabricating this. And anything I said, they questioned like yes. I'm gonna ask Teresa about something that our viewers probably need clarification. Teresa, two things to ask you about. One is what is the difference between a trial and a hearing because a lot of people took away from the keepers that this was a trial and it never got that far. So, Teresa, can you explain the difference and how that all works?
3: Yeah, big difference. Whenever you file a lawsuit, the option is going to try to quash the lawsuit. They're going to try to make it go away. And they do that via following for hearings of different things. My dad had told me the statute of limitations was established law. And that was the big hurdle that he honestly believed we could be, even though like you, Jean, I believe the memories from then on were well within the three year statute of limitations. That was the hearing. Did the statute of limitations bar us from filing the lawsuit? If we had won that hearing, Then we would have gone to the trial where we could have brought in witnesses. And like my letters from the doctors would have come in, all kind of evidence would have come in. But they were successful in stopping us at the hearing, which is a preliminary matter before a trial. And you have to settle all those matters before it's actually Put to trial. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to yeah. say, I I had no idea of that. I know it sounds really, but I was so lost in all of this. I was basically, if people I trusted said, okay, we're going to move now over, I move now over. I actually thought it was a trial. Thought it was so intense. It was so overwhelming. It was so. I would come out of those depositions three different days. We would stand in the parking lot. Mike would hold me up while I cried, because I'd never been talked to like that. I had never been doubted like that. I had never found myself not being able to give clear explanation. There was, like I said, everything drops in. There's no timeline to it. And they kept picking at that. And I was already picking at it within myself. And so they were turning me into... And so I have to say that... I didn't understand that myself. And I've learned how to make sense out
2: of that now, but I did not. I think a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people didn't understand the
3: difference. It's not easy unless you're taught it. They follow a motion to dismiss. You follow a lawsuit and they answer with motion to dismiss and they miss the reasons why the case could be dismissed. Like when I would follow a lawsuit in a lead poisoning case where a child had lead poisoning that damaged him cognitively, and I would have evidence of that with blood tests and what have you, the other side would file a motion to dismiss and claim that there was not enough evidence to, to follow such a case. Where we would go and we would argue the evidence. We weren't in court as a trial. We were at a hearing. I would tell the judge why there wasn't enough evidence to proceed to trial. And the opposition would say, basically, I was bullshit. Right. say that in legal terms. And <laughs> the battle of lawyers back and forth. Mm-hmm. But if we had only succeeded in that statute of limitation issue, then we would have had our day in court. We never got our day in court.
2: Mm-hmm. Never. We got beat up. Yeah. Please. I'm like making. I'm like pushing Shane out of the because I have so many questions. I want to ask, and because this is video, he can't rearrange the chronology. But I want to go back to something that you both referred to, just to clarify for everybody. Paul McHugh was one of the leading proponents of something called false memory syndrome, and it went by FMS. But he was also A under contract at Hopkins and was involved in the MKUltra program. And I remember, Gene, you talked about that is pretty much of a conflict of interest. But could one of you explain the difference between false memory syndrome, because that's been debunked just in the last couple of years, and he won't talk to us, he's still living. And repressed memory, because repressed memory is—that's in the diagnostic bible for psychologists—and they're two very different things. But people get them very confused on social media.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it's what is it? It's dissociative identity disorder is what it's called now. Used to be so there. And I, but I won't go into great detail. But one of the things that I feel is false memory would be, this how I see it. I'm going to explain it from Gene. If I came forward and said, I remember this priest, he did this, and I just this, list. This. And if they could not have anyone else say that they ever knew anything like that, they could then stand behind, that's the false name. But to have Tracy come forward, separate from, away from, a different year then, and give almost the same kind of behavior, not to mention... Another person, I find that became, for me, the affirmation. That cannot be in my mind, that we all have false memory. We all, I've gone to therapists, Teresa hasn't. They want to say it's the therapist who has made suggestions. Teresa has, it's for me, she affirmed that I, because I was my own worst detective, I had this child telling me all this stuff and I literally, there was a separation. And so I was supported by the fact that I don't know that woman from the man in the moon. And she had this man do things
2: to her too. How I, There's no way that could be a false memory. And right. right? There's a difference. And he really, he's really pushes that. He doesn't deny people have had trauma. But his claim is that to deal with the trauma, you make things up and you accuse people falsely because you are trying to deal with the trauma rather than, as you said, now there's a diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder. But he's like a nobody now after being this leader in this whole false memory syndrome organization. Teresa, do you have any thoughts about him? Yeah, back during our
3: case, Repressed memory did not pass the Friar Free Standard, which was an established standard for generally accepted occurrence. Right. And I have a case action found in Maryland where the judge, Judge Rubin, this was in Montgomery County, said that dissociative amnesia has been sufficiently tested by psychiatry. And the community using research methods generally accepted in these fields. And it is, it is now generally accepted. And it's a real thing. They were able to prove a lot was on the post-traumatic stress disorder of returning veterans from war. And how they actually removed being in were being bombed at and all. And they saw it over and over again. And it has been studied and it, it happens in the hippocampus of the brain protect from these horrible things and then when they surface it's reliving i that experience up all night wondering how in the hell i got dressed at maskell's office and you relive it you actually relive the touch the feel the smells and it's proven now where is the about false memory syndrome it seems didn't hold water A lot of times they were saying that psychiatrists were hypnotizing people, interjecting these thoughts. I was never, never did anyone ever inject in my mind about what I was remembering. And I knew it to be true. And like, there were other people coming forward. At one point, Beverly Wallace told me there was 30 Keograd's signed a letter of support that they knew something went wrong at mass schools. It's just we had our day in court today. We would win. We could prove it.
1: Could each of you talk about how the case concluded and what each of you did afterwards?
3: If it's okay, I'll start just to it, it. It ended where I'll know what you call it if it wasn't a trial. What do you call it, Teresa? If it's not a trial, the hearing, the motion to dismiss was granted. Okay, the motion to dismiss was granted, and so we went to the appeal. After the appeals court said they were going to stay with what Maryland. Had decided two weeks after Mike saw off a roof and broke both his wrist, and and so I thought that I was being that I had told secret, and that God, if there be a God, was angry, getting me back. We were in shock. This was never what we thought was going to happen. We really believed in all those. We believed in the church. We believed in the courts. We believed in the law enforcement. The It seemed as if everyone... And then it got solved. So it wasn't just that we were in shock, but everything got quiet. It was like I was afraid to talk. I had already said all these things. They're now letting it just go. I felt I'd told a secret. I felt very guilty. I felt terrified. Now these people were out there. He was out there. Didn't matter to me if they said he was in Ireland or I, I didn't care. He was out there. He was already here, but now he's out there. And we went into a solid mode around it. We moved away from my extended family and any kind of community, which I was already now very much not a part of. I started, I continued to work on my inner work. I continued to raise my family. I started my healthcare practice, Light the Path. I helped Mike during that time with a trans. Peaceful trance to the next level. So it was a time of a lot of growth, but I was really in hiding because I felt I had done something wrong and that nobody was talking about it. I've, no one knew. We had told all the stuff that we had told in these depositions. We had talked to all these lawyers and it wasn't, it was not out in public. So you, we were stuck with all this stuff now and I was still remembering things so I was still working with it I just went into a solid I stayed Jane Doe
0: our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you Dot com, And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: I was devastated. I couldn't believe it either. I was devastated to the point where I wouldn't let it go. And I uh, took it to the Supreme Court. I got a lawyer to file a writ of certiorari to ask if the Supreme Court would hear a case. And even though my dad said the statute limitations it is a done deal, it doesn't have a chance. He supported me in that, and I think he did because he saw. I think I was having a nervous breakdown, and I had to do something. And of course, when that lost, I my focus was lost to understand what the hell happened because those motions. I just talked about the hearings of. I didn't understand all that like I do now, but I had to go back and get my Yang degree first in social work. It was a long road. I just focused on my education and my kids. I think if I didn't have the kids, I wouldn't have made it, because they gave me a purpose to hang in there.
2: We're going to take a minute and, not a minute, as much time as you want. We're going to fast forward to some of the challenges that you both faced when The Keepers was released. So we're not going to retell the movie because today, again, for our listeners and, wa- and viewers, watchers, watchers is like a weird thing. Our viewers, we're talking more about legal battles and the battles that you both had with the institutions that betrayed you. So with the release of The Keepers and everybody meeting you with your faces on the screen, How did each of you, what challenges appeared, and how did you each deal with that? Who wants to start? Works, (laughs) Jane. Teresa, this camera's on you. You want to keep talking? I was terrified about the keepers. First of all,
3: I didn't think it was going to be shown on Netflix. When they interviewed me, when Jess and Ryan interviewed me, I just thought it would be a a document with public TV or something. And when I realized it was going to be broadcast on Netflix and it was going to be a big deal, I was terrified. I thought I was going to come off as looking like a mental case, because I always thought I was nuts. And then I didn't think people would believe me. I thought, here we go again. You're going to have everybody telling me you're crazy. And then some people said, maybe there's going to be a target on your back. A lot of people think we're attacking the religion. And I never meant to attack anyone's faith. I respect everybody's belief systems. But I was terrified. to. Today, the, the day it came out, I actually had to go to my doctor and get, I had to have a colonoscopy time because I, I had so many symptoms. I told the doctor I was dying. <laughs> it was horrible. It was, I couldn't even walk. I said I'm dying. And I am pleasantly surprised when it came out. And we got all that support. I was shocked. I was totally shocked. I stretched myself into an emergency situation because the doctor wouldn't have ordered that if I wasn't just about and It is stress. I think that's the part that is, it's so sad about all this when they don't understand what survivors continue to go through. To talk about this is one of the hardest things to do. That's why a lot of people don't. I think it's why it had such a major impact. Because it wasn't just talked about, but it was talked about with integrity, respect, and it, with a focus of educating and informing versus sensationalizing and tantalizing. It was not, and I made a point to say I will not be a part of Girls Gone Wild because this is a hard thing to talk about, but they needed to talk about some of what happened in order to understand the depths of the crime. So it was a hard, I think for me, it was difficult too because I had outed myself as Gene Hargan and Wainer before they came along. And that in itself was already like, but I did that because I didn't want to become, I didn't want to talk to anybody, whether that was Tom Nugent with his Inside Baltimore or anything. Anyone, because I needed to go to the police and tell them first everything that I had remembered from that point of the courts to now. I'm a good person. I do my civic duty and I've done it ever since I put my name on this. So, yeah, I felt very, I felt free and I felt terrified. I was free because I was talking about things and there were people who were in front of me that looked like they were really getting it. They were listening. I had hardly talked to anybody other than real close friends about any of what I had thrown up on the tables in those depositions at the archdiocese tables. You'd never know by the way they all acted after with nothing. Silence. That we had shared such thick. This is horrific. And if those people who are in charge, the big business behind church had records. Move those people around. Know that they were abusing children, the children of the parishioners. And then they stayed solid after we put ourselves through. I don't know. I don't have words. Because I am a good person. I was taught to be a good person, and a good person doesn't do that, because we deserved better. Now I get off my my. No, it's this is why we're doing this. Yeah, it's why we're doing it. It just so I Teresa, the stress, the to me, it was so hard to do what we were doing, and we did it. We were making no money. We didn't make anything at all from this. We did it because we had a right, for one, to speak our truth to, a, to an audience that might actually listen. We also knew by this point because we that we weren't alone in being a survivor. And so if it was that hard for us to talk about it, And then there were other survivors who also were talking about it. And I feel like it was a snowball in that respect. But I was terrified. It probably took me a year. I got off the grid after The Keepers came out. I went to my sister's horror weekend when it came out. I could only watch parts and sometimes certain parts, not at all. And I was terrified. I was also afraid people were going to start throwing things at me. People were going to start looking me up in order to call me names that I just still was dealing with this feeling like they're going to say I'm lying. This is not an easy thing to do. And so about a year, I would say, before I started feeling grounded again and feeling affirmed to allow the affirmation to somewhat sink in is it took about a year, I'd say.
1: This question can go to anyone who would like to answer it, but I'd like to hear how the Archdiocese of Baltimore reacted to the keepers.
3: Yeah. Teresa, I'll let you start there. They acted like it wasn't true and that they didn't hear about the abuse and they did hear about it, and it was just more of the same lies. Even with us coming forward and talking about all this horrible stuff, and then about Charles's uh, reparation and the keepers, he had no reason to lie about what happened. To him. None of us did. Gene said we got absolutely no money out of this. And the Archdiocese is the same old. We support the victims, we this, we do that, and it's all a bunch oh, cool. of cool. They don't
2: not care. And
3: I can't be convinced that they
2: Do you each remember what the archdiocese, how the archdiocese answered the questions at the end of the series? They wouldn't talk to, they wouldn't be interviewed, but Ryan sent them questions. Yeah. And they, do you remember that? Can you talk about that? Do you remember that? I just know <laughs> that I was, <laughs> because they would say, see answer to number one. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It was like, it was talk about flipping. Again, I have Catholic friends. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about participators within a faith. Right. I'm talking about these are the people who were the leaders of our faith. These are the people who taught us not to lie, taught us what it meant to tell the truth, taught us how to help the person who was down, taught us the things that we were doing and the responses to me were as if we did not matter. It, the lawsuit had or whatever we're calling it, the hearing <laughs> had already happened. There would they we couldn't do anything. We were not going to be able to sue them. They needed to I would say gross and balls, but I won't say that. I they need it to. You just did say it. To do. They needed reconciliation. So that meant that they had to admit their part in this. And all they needed to do, again, we couldn't do it. We couldn't. They needed to speak up. They needed to get the courage to speak up. Just like they got threatened and ended up bringing the statute of limitations age up during that time. Because it was like, oh, my God, they're filming this. What's going to happen? It took pressure. We were just asking for honest response. And I was angry. I still am. I still feel very much that we have not been treated with the same integrity and respect that Ryan White and Jessica Hardgraves and John Benham showed us. Correct or Jim Maggio, Beverly Wallace, and Sylva Dantes. We have not been treated with that kind of
2: respect. Do either of you remember what happened at Keogh when the keepers came out, the letters that went home, and what the girls were told? Do, do you recall that, I Teresa? I remember the letters.
3: I don't remember the content of the letters. I was still celebrating the conception that the keepers got
2: there and told but, right. Yeah, they sent out people at To the families at Keogh. And of course there was talk began that year about closing the school. Big surprise. But the girls were told, and I've talked to a few of them, they're young, but they were told and their moms, or it would be our daughters, they were told not to discuss this with anybody, especially the media. And letters went out to every single parish in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, the same letter from, what's his name, Lori, our Archbishop, and priests were required to read the letter at every Mass after the keepers came out with the Archdiocese perspective on it. I'll see if I can find a copy of it, and Shane can post it with this, but a lot of priests There are a lot of good priests in this world. A lot of them who empathized and supported what you were doing refused to read that letter. And instead, they set up really productive discussion groups to talk about what can we do to help and how can we keep this from happening. So there are some renegade parishes out there that we have to give kudos to. But the the archdiocese really thought that they were just going to squash it. They know that's yeah. going to happen now that they've seen who they're dealing with. The, I have he wants he. I'm going to leave
3: him anonymous because I didn't ask permission. But a gentleman was a part of a board for a one of the Catholic organizations, God. and he, they came in and there was a priest visiting, and the priest proceeded to imply that there were that the keepers there were lies. And this gentleman stood up and said, You need to stop talking because I know that family and they're not liars. And the priest stopped talking. Did he but th- he had come specifically to squelch the keeper's impact. Good.
2: Did either of you meet with Lori? I was offered a meeting <laughs> and I told him, <laughs> I know Lil did and she told him off. She said, I, did, I, I just, think, did, yeah, the only him. good thing about it was his dog was there. And she said, She told him off. So good for her no. and Lil everybody. I had knows. I did, I felt it was empty, just empty, and oh. I
3: can't oh. even believe that this man is. What you, even with that's the one thing that after the, it's almost like
2: this is the lead. He's the guy. He's what you, the guy? This episode is going to be all over the world. And we're going to send copies to specific people. So if either of you would like to say something directly to Archbishop Lori, who is still the Archbishop of Baltimore, here's your opportunity. You
3: should resign, Lori. You should resign. I don't believe, because I've lost all trust in anything that you say, And I also feel that what has really opened up for me is the realization that until you bring women into your community of priests, you always have this dysfunctional situation because there is a balance that needs to happen, has nothing to do with who's abusing who, But you are off balance and decisions are being made and the power is being held by just men. And when you have that, you have the potential of all kinds of havoc. So to me, please consider making a move in bringing women into the healthy balance of the hierarchy here in Maryland.